stand out from the crowd? Are you looking for exclusive content you can't get anywhere else? Sign up for the shoulder of Orion Patreon at bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and show the world you're something special. The following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Welcome, everyone, to a special Minnesota edition of Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. We are delighted to bring you uh, what we think and hope will be your first uh, review access to the very first issue of Blade Runner 2019, the comic. This is Patrick, and today I'm joined by... Jamie. And Dan. And uh, we have a lot to unpack. We are going to keep this spoiler-free completely, so you can listen to this and not worry about learning stuff that you uh, should be surprised by within a week. And there are things that will surprise you in this. So we're not going to mess that up for you. Uh, going forward, as these issues continue to come out, we're probably going to get into you know spoiler reviews right up front because it won't be that big sort of reveal. But for now, especially for these early issues, we're going to be very careful about not giving the story away to people who might not have experienced yet because we want you guys to experience this the way we are seeing it for the first time. Titan Comics was super generous. They gave us early access to uh, a review copy of the first issue. So um, before we get into the plot a little bit, and before we get into some of our individual thoughts on it, I just wanted to run through a couple of business details right up front just to remind people what this is, when it's coming out, and where they can pick it up. So a couple quick things. One, this is officially releasing a week from today, so the day that you're listening to this. It's going to come out on July 17th. In print and digital, you can find it at most comic retailers. My local bookshop has mine on hold for next week. Um, it's also available uh, online. You can get it from the Titan website. You can get it from any number of places. The trade paperback is also announced, and it's coming in November of 2019. And you can actually pre-order that right now, and it's kind of cheap. Uh, so I'm going to do that as well. And a reminder that there are five variant covers for this first issue, and there will be more variant covers for subsequent ones. So if you have a comic store that you frequent, which I hope you do, you can go there and, and request that any of the variants that they manage to get be held for you. A lot of them will probably be harder to find because they'll be, um, for for example, like a, an incentive for comic shops to sell a thousand copies and they'll get one variant for selling a thousand. Some of it's going to be hard to get. There is one variant, though, that I want to tell you about, which if you are anywhere near San Diego next week, you can get. And that is an SDCC exclusive edition variant of number one, which you can get at a signing with Mike Johnson, the co-writer of this comic, uh, on Friday. So this is on July 19th, the Friday of Comic-Con, uh, Mike Johnson is doing a signing from 1.30 to 2.30, and that's where you can pick up this um, this limited edition and get it signed right there in person. So uh, I guess we can go ahead and move on unless you guys have anything to add up front. Quick question. When you say trade paperback, are you talking about like the first year's worth of issues collected into a book? Is that what you're saying? So that's a really good question. As we know, based on our conversation with David Leach a couple months back, who's the creative editor behind this, this will be an ongoing series. So this is not just a one-and-done miniseries arc that comes out this year and that's it. This is actually an ongoing comic, 
And uh, as such, it will be getting collected trade paperback editions every once in a while. So a lot of the times when comics are on these ongoing series, like something like Amazing Spider-Man, you know, every seven or eight issues, they'll put they'll put like a cohesive arc together into a smaller paperback volume you can kind of put up on a bookshelf. So uh, if you want to get the first arc of this in one of those collected editions, you can pre-order it right now, and it comes out in November. And assume, I'm assuming that as more of these come out, we'll get more of those collected editions, and we'll have a whole freaking bookshelf full of new Blade Runner stories to talk about. So anything else you guys want to add? I will be at Comic-Con. Uh, I probably will try and buy that. I'm not sure. I don't. I won't be at the signing because I'm otherwise unavailable. But uh, it's, I, for anyone who's at Comic-Con, I'll be there. Yeah, and, and, and if you are there, you should drag Jamie to the booth so he can get at least me, but probably Dan too, at least five copies of that exclusive edition. Okay. Because okay. if you don't, I'm not going to forgive you. <laughs> I'm quitting I'm the podcast. Withdraw, I'm going to withdraw all of our <laughs> PayPal funds and spend it all. <laughs> um, I bought 35 copies. <laughs> but we have no money. <laughs> so, uh, so, so we're, we're going to get into our thoughts a little bit. Before we do, I put together a really basic plot outline just to kind of guide our conversation a little bit. So the plot concerns our protagonist, which is a Blade Runner named Ash. She's a veteran. She has extraordinary powers of perception. She's very kind of boots on the ground. She's uh, a, a gifted Blade Runner who maybe has been doing her job too well because there hasn't been much work lately. And she gets pulled in relatively early to a missing persons case. Uh, the missing persons case concerns a mother and daughter who have been who have gone missing from uh, the estate of a billionaire named Alexander Selwyn, who is uh, some sort of an industrialist. Presumably, we're going to I'm sure learn a lot more about him. But he has asked for help tracking down his wife and daughter who have gone missing, and he thinks that they've gone missing under mysterious circumstances tied to replicants. So that's what we know uh, at the outset of this of this whole thing. Um, so going from there, what are you guys' thoughts on this first issue? Um, I guess I'll go first real quick. I, I want to reiterate a point that I think I made earlier that uh, it was really easy watching even just the, the four or five preview pages to feel like it was sort of rehashing too much of the aesthetic of the first film. And then I very quickly had to slow myself down and realize, oh, right, but it's like same year, same L.A., same world. So like same exact police station building like it actually makes sense like the blimp is the actual blimp from the film the police station is the actual police station so i had to sort of reset my mind and how i was looking at the comic and once i made that shift um i really was able to be less skeptical and just really enjoy the the plot and the art and kind of being re-immersed in that world because I was like, oh, yeah, I'm being reintroduced to the first film. It's just a side story that's different with different characters. And so um, it helped me a lot uh, to reframe my perspective in that way. And after that, I just like really, really was gripped and really pulled into that world. Um, a lot of the detail of like the blimp or like a noodle bar or, or the street scenes and things like that were just like – Again, I think it really comes through that David Leach, the creative director, is a self-described, you know, Blade Runner nerd and super fan. And I think um, you can see the thought and care and dedication that he's putting into it so far. Um, I'll start with that. Yeah, I mean, the world was very familiar. Um, even the introduction to the character was very familiar, um, very fam just beat for beat. In terms of uh, relating to Deckard, um, it's very rich, very well done. All of the covers that I've seen are great. The Sid Mead cover being my favorite. Um, oh, yeah. yeah uh, 
yeah, I just, uh, you know, they are immersed into the world and it, it, it is very familiar. Um, but I, I think Dan is correct in saying you have to kind of reorient yourself that this is another story, but it's happening concurrently with Deckard's story or around that time. Um, so I think the tendency is for people to go into these things like, oh, this is a sequel. It's not a sequel. It's not even really related. It's just another Blade Runner doing her own thing in the same city that we know. Um, so in that respect, it's interesting. Um, uh, you know, like I've said before, I have some trouble with some of the exact same iconography that we've seen before. Not to say that that stuff, obviously it's present because it's set in the same city dealing with some of the same things. You have a blade runner after replicants. So we're going to see all of those things. Um, I just felt like maybe they could kind of veer off into something new to introduce it and not be so like, Hey, here's exactly what you've seen before. But Again, I also realize this is a story they're telling, and we got to give it time to get to that point. Um, obviously, we'll talk about this later, but there are things that we've seen that, or that we've read in the imagery that we've never seen before um, that totally take the story off in a completely new direction. So I'm not a comic guy, as you guys know. It's a really easy read. Uh, the way that they have it put together so it's like a voiceover. So it's a voiceover in your head. It's so easy for me to read that and go along. Like, it's like, it reminds me of almost like the books when you were a kid, the Disney books with the chimes. Like I am not, it's hard. For, I'm not an easy reader, you know, like it's hard for me to read or to concentrate, but the way that it's set up, I just was like, boom, all the way through. I was like, well, that was pretty cool. So uh, I'm excited about the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. That's something that to me, well, I'll, I'll go back to you in a second, but just a quick thought on that. So, I, as you guys know, I read a, I read probably too many comics. It's like one of the main, the main things that I do. And something that I always find He's reading uh, Spider Man versus Godzilla right now. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I would I would I would buy that in a heartbeat if it existed. So in my mind, like a mark of a great comic artist is being able to take artistic license and be expressive, but still be really, really clear. Like the great comic artists are always the ones who are able to tell a compelling story and draw you along while also making it super, super clear what's happening because it's reinforcing the narrative that we're being presented with. And even when they deviate from that, when they when they take expressive license, it's still very clear why and what's happening because like... Uh, and we've seen this quite a bit lately with Dark Horse Aliens comics, which I, I won't get into, which have been, for the most part, really great, but occasionally, in my mind, missing on the artistic front, is I'm like, why is it hard to tell what I'm looking at? Like, why is it? Conf why is this angle not properly proportioned with the previous angle of the same thing, and now I don't know how far away they are? It's like those very basic things that can draw you out of a story if you can't figure out what's going on. What I love about Gwinaldo's art, which we'll get a little more into in a bit is how clear it is, just like Jamie was saying. It guides you through this so uh, vividly, and there's never a question about what you're looking at, which, considering how visually dense it is and how much is going on, I think is a real feat. Dan, what were you saying? Uh, yeah, that's a really good point. I, I mean, I appreciate when Patrick can have this perspective on comics in particular because there's things about the sort of creative direction that I just don't think about, um, and it's nice to break that down. But one thing that came to mind, um, uh, first of all, I was going to go back to one thing Jamie said, um, but I lost that for a second, so let me go back to this point. Um, so I printed out the uh, 
again, thanks to Titan Comics for uh, giving us this preview issue. Um, so I printed it out just on regular office printer paper, and it's in color and stuff. But of course, it's stapled in all in a row. And um, I don't think this is a spoiler, so I'll go into it. In the middle of the issue, there's a two-page spread that is with a little bit of voice. Oh, that's what I was going to talk about the voice, or I'll go back to that. But it's a two-page spread of Ash flying her spinner and the view from outside her spinner. And I remember, like, I've got this stapled issue, and I'm trying to, like, line up the pages as best I can because I'm like, oh, my God, this is such an amazing view. I want to be able to be in her spinner and see this. And, of course, I couldn't because of the format I had it in. So I can't wait to see the actual comic. But, like, that was a great creative move to all of a sudden, like, bam, give you, like, a full-page, two-page view of what she's seen, like a P, almost a POV. You can see her face in it. But anyways, uh, I thought that was incredible in terms of where you're putting the camera and perspective, so to speak. Um, yeah, that's that's called – and we'll go right back to, to what you were going to say, but just sure. a quick note. So that's called the splash page. And that oh, cool. is another thing that I judge comic artists on all the time is how innovative they are with the use of splash images like that. And I know exactly what you're talking about because I printed it out too. And I sat there with this freaking paper in front of me for like five <laughs> minutes just smile, beaming from ear to ear being like, oh my God, I feel like I'm flying a spinner right now. It felt yeah. so immersive. And I was looking at all the detail of the cities in the background and the other traffic right. and like where so she was beautiful. flying in relation to the other cars. And I was like, oh my God, I'm like really in this visual world. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. I'm looking at the gauges. I'm like trying to see how similar or different they are from the film, which yeah. which they are. They're a little more simple. They're not quite as detailed, but I'm still like, what does that do? What does this do? Where's her hand? Like, it's just yeah, so Yeah, but cool. it's a different spinner model, right? Like, which, which I yeah, sure, totally. you can tell they use Sid Mead's conceptual art as a basis because I've seen the one that they're using in some of his concept art before for Ash. Oh, cool. And I'm like, okay. recognize oh, oh gotcha. shit, I forgot about this with the two orbs right. in the front. It looks so cool. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Really gorgeous. And um, yeah, I was going to make a comment that I made to you guys in our private thread, but I wanted to say to our listeners, and um, I think if you read a lot of comics, this is probably an obvious point, but for people like me and Jamie who have read comics, but we don't on the regular, it was interesting to see a like perfect application of voiceover in all senses, right? You're looking at a noir that is Blade Runner 2019, but it's in comic format. Comics almost always have a it's usually a first person thought um voiceover right so it's just the thoughts of the character on the page because you have to right i mean there are examples of comics that for a while go quiet and you're just getting images because it's trying to display sort of the character not thinking about something or they're just trying to do something with imagery but most of the time there is a voiceover and i cannot think of a more perfect application than this particular story right because it's like oh yeah this is what a voiceover would have been like in blade runner had it been written well and had it there been more time to have a, a single blade runner character flying around a lot more on their own and not just trying to like explain the story to the audience but like an artistically well-written voiceover so i just want to make that comment real quick and I love her voice. I love the way that that uh, Green and Johnson are writing her voice. I feel like she does not sound like Deckard at all. She sounds like she actually really loves her job because she's so good at it. And she sounds like there's all of these sort of little mysteries that are bubbling right beneath the surface that we know we're going to find out. Things from her past, like why she, why there are so many rumors about her, why she, you know, has why people talk about her so much, right? Like she seems like she's very mysterious. And the way that the comic starts um, is with. Well, I guess, uh, Jamie, I want to kick it off to you in a second. I just wanted to get a thought out that you're reminding me of. I love how firmly rooted in the traditions of noir it, this is, more so even, I think, than the than the theatrical, the theatrical cut of Blade Runner. I feel like there is 
this uh it's it's so dark and it's so gritty and it's very mysterious and you're right away you're aware like what i'm seeing isn't what i'm really seeing there's more going on here and you're sitting right there with ash as she dives head first into this mystery and what she's saying is so terse and so poetic and so dark like she talks in the very beginning it's not a spoiler about the relative value of different replicant body parts on the black market right and like it just just hearing her kind of like going through that list i'm like man this is going to be dark and then of course it begins with an extraordinary act of violence which thematically has huge resonances of course to other blade runner films which we're not going to get into but also is it sets the tone that this story is going to be very brave and it's going to freak you out a little bit jamie what what else what, what are some of your other thoughts well it's interesting about her character she seems to be perhaps a bit crooked uh she's not on the record all the time whereas deckard uh, from what we know, Deckard was kind of over life, over his job. He seemed pretty above board. You know, he didn't seem like anything else was going on aside from what we could see. Whereas with Ash, she is definitely not who we think she is or who even, I mean, right away they give the opinion or they give the idea that she's a little crooked or that she is uh, a little dishonest, which I think is interesting. I, uh, female characters are, are, are interesting. Um, it's, I'm going to definitely be paying attention to how green has written her and you know, the other writer, uh, just because female actors are hard for men to write. Men think, Oh, I'll write a good woman. Like by writing her like a man. And that's not how you write good women, uh, or good female characters. So it's going to be interesting to see. And oftentimes people think, Oh, I'll play against a stereotype. I'll make her mean and hard and like torture, torturing people. Cause that she's going to kick out. That's not how you write good with females either. Uh, so I'm, anxiously awaiting uh the next issues to see where that goes um and i think also to the way men respond to women women in film women in comics is also dependent upon how the men in those comics wrote them so uh, it's just stuff that i pay attention to so it's gonna be interesting yeah totally Uh, there's definitely a balance there Uh, i mean i think you may be just because of your both you guys, but your love for Ripley and and that whole storyline and that female heroine, um, you may be paying closer attention to this than I am, but there is a balance, right. Of writing this character where her, I don't want to say femininity because she's not a feminine character, but her, um, her womanhood is actually has something to do with the story. Meaning that her, for example, with Ripley and Newt, like where her empathy, you know, that motherly empathy that a female character can have towards another character actually becomes important versus a story the way I read this first issue where it was like, oh, right, it's relatively gender neutral. Like she's obviously a woman, but that part of the story right now is not important, which is all, which I also like because it kind of um, in terms of sort of equality on the job, it's like, well, no, what's important is that she's a Blade Runner, right? Like she happens to be a female, but what she's doing right now is like paying her bills and going through her life and going after this and dealing with this problem and dealing with her background and her boss, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I like sort of the juxtaposition of the neutrality of gender in within certain contexts versus playing on the strengths and weaknesses of of a gender and a particular person, which I think is tricky to write. You're right. Especially for a man. One thing that I think threw me off a little bit with her, uh, and this has been published. So it's just her costume. She's got a tie and a vest a little bit like gaff and kind of it. I was like, Oh, they're dressing her up like a man a little bit. I, 
I kind of had issue with that. Like, cause sometimes again, male writers think let's play against type and let's dress her up like a man. So I, I don't know where her character's going. Um, obviously I don't even think what you think Dan is probably, I, I don't know. Like, obviously we'll talk about this more, but I'm interested to see if they make her a lesbian. And I hope they don't, to be honest with you, because that's what men can kind of do in these situations where they, they want to write. And I don't mean to be harping on this, but it's really difficult to get a really strong, positive, and um, also a female character in that femininity. Correct. It just really, really is. And, you know, we, I was talking about this with a friend of mine the other day, just about like David Lynch and the women in his films and um, just kind of the trappings that he fell in, even though he's a brilliant writer and a brilliant filmmaker. Um, and it's, it's tough sometimes for men to not want to write their fantasies. Uh, with women. So typically they're lesbian, especially if they're in a more male dominated uh, role. Anyways, I don't want to get that far into it, but it's going to be intriguing for me to read where they go. And I hope they don't, I hope it's not what I expect it to be. Yeah. Or, or if it, I mean, I I think it's also, it's so easy to get so caught up in the gender dynamics that we start um, losing sight of like just her character because, because she might fall into trappings that we expect, but it doesn't invalidate her character. I think, you know, like we're going to see where it goes, but for example, the way she dresses, we find out is very, is very specifically for a reason, right? Like there's, which, which we're not going to talk about, but, but her, there, there are, I think there are character decisions being made that uh, lend themselves to me thinking that she will be more than just sort of a a projected character written by men, you know, uh, as, as a woman. But who knows? We have not had enough yet to see that. I like her a lot. Um, I think something, Dan, that you said— I don't like or dislike her. There's not enough for me to, to hmm. make a decision. It's interesting. She's interesting. Yeah. Uh, the, the decisions that they've made at the end, I was like, oh, okay, we'll see, we'll see where this goes. And it completely veers off anything that we expect. That's what I loved. Right. And we're also—we're being thrown—and again, not talking about spoilers, but we're being thrown by the end of the issue in terms of narrative— uh, a situation that I think will really bring out the gender aspects quite a bit because of of what of of who she is chasing and and what that dynamic is. So we're going to see uh, how that goes, but who knows? Um, but I do think that there are substantive differences, especially in terms of detective work, to the ways men and women at least traditionally approach it. And I and I'm saying this because just last night I was listening to an interview on a podcast with a team of a male detective and a female detective and they were talking a lot about how they really try when possible to do that because there are differences in the ways many women approach crime scenes. They notice different things, right? And I hope that they play that up a little bit and I hope we get to see, you know, but again, we're talking in such broad generalities because it's not like women and men are, you know, from different planets and it's also not like they're all fitting into a, an easy category. So who knows? We have a lot to go on. A lot to talk about still. I want to, just in wrapping, um, talk a little bit about the personnel behind this. Uh, I, I freaking love Andres Guinaldo's art. This is the first I've actually been exposed to it. He's done quite a bit. He's done uh, Captain America, Steve Rogers. He's done Dark Rain, Hawkeye, which is freaking great. Apparently, I haven't read it, but people I know have read it and they love it. Son of Hulk. Um He's somebody who hasn't done that much high-profile stuff, but I think he really deserves to. His style reminds me a lot of the style of Killian Plunkett, which is like one of my biggest compliments I can give somebody because I freaking love Killian Plunkett's art. And anybody listening to this who knows the Dark Horse Aliens comics will know who I'm talking about. Uh, It's very analog. It's very detailed. It's very messy in a very beautiful way. 
Um, he's inking his own pencils too, which I think gives it such, it's, you know, like we talk about Mike Mignola's art as being so immediately recognizable. Part of that's because he, and, and Frank Miller for that matter, they do a lot of their own inking, right? So they're, they're, they're penciling in a way that lends itself to a very particular inking style. And I feel like Guinaldo is doing that here too, where his art is very detailed and it's very saturated and it's very full. And he does not back off on the inking for that. He makes it very saturated, very full. There's really thick lines. There's a lot of detail. Some of the guidelines on the page are still visible between the panels. And I don't know if that's because it was a preview, but I hope they keep it because it was drawn with a pen. You know, this is not digital art. I mean, the colors I'm sure are digital. And that's Marco Lesko, who does a great job as well. Actually, I really love the color palette. I just want to get that out there. I think it's actually sort of atypical for a Blade Runner property, and I think it helps separate it a little bit from the things that we've seen. It's a little brighter. Um, it's a little more varied. There's pastels in one section that I think are really shocking and really beautiful. Um, but the art feels to me very uh, analog. And in a way, so does the the lettering, too. Jim Campbell's lettering is, like, very expressive. It's not very precise. When characters are speaking loudly, it kind of goes out of line a little bit. Uh, and even the writing, I feel like Johnson and Green are doing this out of real love for the property and love for these characters. And it feels weird and it feels fun. And to me, that's what makes a great comic book, is it knows who it is, and it knows what it wants to do, and it feels like something people stayed up late working on, not because they had a deadline, but because they couldn't stop getting their ideas out. Um, I just want to emphasize in my closing thoughts, well, for one thing, I just want to say I absolutely love it. I think it's, it's, it's exactly what I want. Um, it's, it's something that allows me to feel like I'm really back in that world, because I am as a reader. Like you said, Jamie, this is happening down the street. Like, this is not some alternate universe. This is the same LAPD headquarters building because it's literally happening a couple of neighborhoods away from the events of the film that we love so well. So we're getting to do what David Leach said in that interview, which is, what are the stories happening that we're not seeing when we're watching Blade Runner? Because there's all these people everywhere. There's all these windows with lights on. There's all this activity. What if we just, like, followed that and saw where it went? And I feel like that's what this is. I feel like I'm getting to just live in that film. And it's, it's almost impossible to overstate how important this is to us as a fandom because it is a canon sequel. It is a canonical entry in this legacy that is being produced in conjunction with Alcon, with the use of Sid Mead's properties, with his involvement in it, you know, using actual concept art. And he's, he's not known for being particularly easy to use from a licensing standpoint. His stuff is very protected. And he's actually like a participating element of this. And it's being co-written by the guy who co-screen wrote 2049. This is as first party as it gets. This is just as important from a narrative standpoint as the films. It might not have the same place in our heart. That's okay if it doesn't, you know. But it is, from a storytelling standpoint, just as relevant. It's just a different story that will filter in. And you'll see this as you read the first issue. Filter in occasionally, just a little bit, to events that we know extremely well. And, uh, and I find that just incredibly fascinating. And I can't wait to be on this ride. And I hope it goes on for years and years and years. And I hope we get new stories. And I hope the stories get more divergent and more weird. And I hope that we learn things that we never thought we would learn about this universe that it's easy to feel is finite, but it's not, right? There was a whole world in 2019 of Blade Runner. And we're getting to uncover little tracts of it with these comics. 
Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll I'll close and then pass it off to Jamie. But yeah, no, I agree. I uh, I'm really excited to see what else they come up with. Um, I can feel a good villain coming or multiple ones, but like I'm excited for a completely new character that's going to be villainous and kind of scheming and you know probably someone with a corporation or something like that. But I, you know I'm just like imagining the visuals of that and it's really cool. Um, I also think that going into this preview we were all thinking in the back of our minds at least about that first variant uh you know the 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 classic one i guess where you can see uh rachel's shadow smoking uh as ash's shadow and none of us had any idea what that meant and i won't spoil whether they explain any of that or not in the first issue but i'm 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 excited to see sort of that visual aspect of the story unfolding and um and yeah to see what else they come up with but so far I'm really impressed and really excited and um yeah I'll pass it off to Jim. Yeah, I'm excited as well. Uh I actually don't think uh Ash is going to be who we think she's going to be. Like uh obviously at the end we see some things and uh I don't, I don't think that's what it is at all. Um I think it's definitely what do you what do you call it when they're purposefully distracting you from something it's called some red herring no no that could be it too but uh that's it's just another word and i think they want you to think oh this is happening it's i don't think that that's happening it might just be the writer in me where like i'm kind mister, of ready misdirection. for anything misdirection yes um I think well, that well, I, sorry let me clarify i wasn't trying to imply that that cover made me think that she's like related to rachel no no like i was I'm to me it's an abstraction so. Yeah, I was responding to some things that we were talking about earlier, too. Okay, like, okay. I think okay. that there's some definite misdirection happening with Ash. But yeah, it's going to be interesting to see uh, the, the next ep- or the next uh, issues. And I really hope that they turn some things on their heads. And maybe there's some replicants that they get in- that get involved that aren't, um, uh, I don't know, that, that, that don't kind of fill the space of the replicants from the original film. That are a little bit different. That are a little bit more easy to be with that aren't kind of always like, Oh, we got to get rid of them. I I just hope that they uh, go off in a different direction in that way. But whatever the case, I am excited to read it. I, again, I've never read a comic that fast before. So it, yeah, we'll see. Nice. Well, thank you guys. And uh, everybody happy reading again. If you're going to Comic-Con, get that variant signed and this drops July 17th. So a week from today. So pick it up and let us know what you think. And we will be back very shortly with some more spoilery conversations but uh we hope you enjoyed this and enjoy reading bye guys see you guys to find out more about shoulder of orion the blade runner podcast please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.